fact, it's my plan to secretly educate everybody uh, to, to, to see these things. And uh, so people are super spotters or you're not. Like some people have no talents for it, I found out. Like you, you can just show them and they're like, they still don't see it even if I labeled the, the duplications. But I do feel that when I make people aware that these things exist, it will be easier to spot these things when a person does a peer review because it only takes seconds if you're, if you're just trained, not just trained to see it, but just be aware that some people might be fraudulent or errors might exist. Hi there, I'm Dr. Ofri Zalbanea and I'm with Dr. Elena Itzkovich for another episode of Macademia Podcast. Here we explore the different ways science and scientific careers can be developed outside of academia. Before we introduce our guest for today, we would like to invite you to join our Macademia group on Facebook, to follow our account at MacademiaP on Twitter, and if possible, to subscribe, rate, or review our podcast at your favorite podcast app, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This will, of course, support others to join this very important conversation as we explore with others the different ways of how science is much more than just academia. And now I want to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Bick with a long career studying at a PhD in microbiology in the Netherlands. She gained experience in both public, academic research, and even startup-based science. She had seen it all, but her latest venture as a scientific integrity consultant is unique and very intriguing. Let's dive into this one-of-a-kind, non-duplicated Macademia podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi. Hi. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us. Indeed. So, um, so tell us a bit. Uh, Ofer said that um, you've uh, had a journey from academia to to industry, um, back to academia, I think, and then um, to science integrity. So, can you just in a few words summarize that? Long journey? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be needing a couple more words than a few. Uh, yeah, so I, I started my career at a research institution at the Dutch National Institute of Health. I worked four years in a hospital in a in the clinical world as a microbiologist slash molecular biologist. Then I moved to, to, the, to the United States and worked 15 years at Stanford, sort of back to research. And then I worked two and a half years in industry, doing uh, working two years at Ubiome and a couple of months at Astarte Medical. And about uh, two years ago, I quit all of that, and now I am a uh, consultant and but a lot of the work I do actually is unpaid and voluntarily and like yeah for for everybody and uh, so uh, yeah it's sort of a, a good combination I feel of doing what I love to do right now and being paid for some of that yeah so could you share how um, why did you do the transition so for example you left from Stanford to biotech I guess you brought your knowledge of microbiome with you to these companies? Right, yeah. So I, I worked in the microbiome as a researcher and it had really never occurred to me that you can 
also use that in a commercial way. And I, I never also thought I would be a good fit for industry, but I saw the job advertisement and it was so, uh, it seemed to be a perfect fit for me. So it was, uh, I loved uh, writing about the microbiome, sort of blogging, talking about it on Twitter, uh, giving talks, uh, you know, in cafes, on, on science cafe nights and things like that. And so this job was um, basically to, to help the company make the science accessible and also ensure that the science behind the product, which was a kit to, to determine your microbiome composition, to make sure that the science behind the product was fine. So it seemed to be a really good fit for my experience and, and the things I love. And so I, I quit my job at Stanford, where I also felt like I was a little bit stuck. I, I felt I had been, been there for 15 years and I wanted to have some new horizons and, and learn some new things. And so I made the jump. So were you browsing on LinkedIn or has someone sort of scouted you on LinkedIn? Or? Uh, I, I don't actually quite remember. I was I was looking for jobs. Uh, so I, I don't quite remember if it was Glassdoor or LinkedIn or where mm -hmm. I saw the job advertisement, but I saw it somewhere and I just felt this is me. They're looking for me. And I I applied. It's fun. It's fun to see something, you know, sometimes you just find the ad exactly with your sort of expertise and you just know that if you apply, you'll get it. And it, it, it's a great feeling. Well, I, I didn't know if I was going to get it, but you know, I, it, I, I did feel it, I, I made a good chance. And, and luckily the company was, was glad to have me because I was already, you know, a little bit well known and, and, you know, knew many people in the microbiome world. So seemed to, to be a good fit. And if, if you look back at the transition to being a scientist uh, for, for many years in, in academia and leading research under, under this infrastructure, like Stanford is, is great, but still infrastructure of academia, so grant writing and everything, and doing the transition to uh, uh, a different pace, different uh, stakeholder um, uh, private sector like, the, like you buy them. What was the, even for you, a more very experienced one in your field, what was the biggest gap that you found, found like that you have to bridge? I felt that one thing I wasn't really good at uh, was like working together in teams. Uh, it was something I had not really done in at Stanford that much. Uh, but I, I'm not quite sure if I was a good fit, but I, I did enjoy the feeling of that you work in a group, um, which I to be honest, did not really have an academia. So I, I felt in academia, you all work sort of on your own product, at least in, in our group. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you sort of work, you have common um, areas of interest, but you don't really work together, I felt. And uh, maybe that's not the same in every group, but in, at least in our group, it felt a little bit like that. And at the startup at Ubim, I felt there was more of a camaraderie of working together. Uh, for example, you know, like a, a big box arrived with some new equipment and, you know, everybody just pitched in the, the VP and the director, like everybody <laughs> just helped unpack the box. And um, so you, you work together when, uh, when some help was needed, not, not necessarily what you were hired for. So I've put labels on boxes and, you know, water to plants and, and, clean the dishwasher and whatever was needed you just do it and those were not really things of course I was paid for but uh you, yeah you just see that works need to be done and you pitch in and you just do it together and you have fun and and then uh, afterwards you just have happy hour and you know have 
have a glass of wine or so. That was also something I did not experience in, in academia that much. Um, but also learning about all the different topics in a company. So, of course, I knew a little bit about research and uh, science, but I felt like in the company, you learn so much more about things like marketing and HR and just packaging boxes. Like, how does that work? How do you, uh, how do you uh, have a database and like, how do you work with that? So because the company was still very small, you meet all the different people in all these different roles and you learn a little bit about what they do not necessarily understand everything, but I felt it gave me so much more perspective on all the different aspects of a company um, that I just did not know about. And, and that was a fantastic learning experience. It sounds very cool. And, and it, it's, um, it's a returning mode, like, uh, motif that we hear a lot that uh, the teamwork in academia is lacking. And, and like in, in, your, in your perspective, why is that? So why why does doesn't like academia just employs a more team based uh, model? Yeah, I'm not sure. I it it felt for me that we were all competing for, for example, the PI's time and and uh, attention, and we were uh, not necessarily we were working together a little bit. Like you would show somebody, you know, there's the buffer or there's the machine, but you're you're all competing for the same things. While I felt in in a, in a startup, at least you all you have your own little role, and so you have to work together. You're not really there's only one person who knows what I knew, and then you you need to work together with other people. And you just have more uh, because everybody has very different talents and and uh, backgrounds and education, and so you you work together more because you're all very different. And maybe it's because in academia we're all in a lab, we're all working on the same thing, but you are there for sort of competitors of each other. Yeah, and, and, and you don't really have a common goal. Like in a startup, your goal is to basically sell a product or, you know, of some kind. And you all feel that that you're all working together on a tiny part of that. Well, in academia, your goal seems to be a publication. That's sort of our, our outputs. And that is something you do work on with others but it's your it, it goes on your own account it's not something you work on as a group so yeah i think that's more competition than you have within a group in in uh, at a startup someone someone has to solve this <laughs> <laughs> well there's you know advantages and disadvantages yeah. of any role like uh you know in the end uh the company i worked at you um uh, there were rumors that I heard about shady things going on with billing. And so there were a bunch of other things after working there for two years, things turned, you know, the company got really big and I felt that science wasn't really part as much as it was in the beginning. So I felt that my background as a scientist and my knowledge and my advice was more and more ignored and uh, so I left the company and then a couple of months later, the company got raided by the FBI, like the, literally the FBI knocked in the door and, and uh, you know, confiscated all the computers. And, and that was sort of the start of the end because at, at some point the, the company went bankrupt. <laughs> so and you so left in good time. <laughs> I, I, did left, I did leave in time, but it, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it, it wasn't as glorious as in the beginning. And, and so that is 
something that I'll carry with me for the rest of my life that I've worked at a company that in the end got, you know, raided by the FBI. And uh, the, the, there's not been yet any legal activity, but so I'm not quite sure what will come out of this, but it is something that a lot of people, my enemies on Twitter keep on bringing up that, oh, but you worked at that company that, you know, did the FBI already talk to you? And they never talk to me. <laughs> I'm easy to find online. So I would assume if I was guilty of something or suspected of being guilty of something, they would have talked to me, but they didn't. So, but yeah, a lot of, lot of people keep on bringing that up. And so I'll carry with that with me for the rest of my life. So the, you know, so the interest in, in, in integrity and in science integrity started beforehand because uh, you, you're very aware of this and the, it, the, you were aware of those red flags and, and the conduct and, and you buy them and then it, it, it drove you to, to take action. But the, the interest started beforehand and like in your PhD or later? Yes, uh, it started while I was at Stanford and, and just as a, you know, I heard on a, on a podcast, I think I heard something about science integrity and image duplications and plagiarism. And I was immediately fascinated by that, you know, as, as most people are fascinated about murder stories or, or any, <laughs> any crime It's just fascinating. I'm like, wait, that happens in science. I I'd never thought of that. That you know, I thought all scientists were like super honest and, 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 you know, that's what I felt I was, uh, or I should be at least. And I was just, very mesmerized by hearing about these stories. And I, uh, yeah, so I started looking into plagiarism, found something, and then that led to image manipulation searches. So sort of a long, long story. But uh, yeah, it started as a hobby while I was still working full-time at Stanford. And uh, it now is my my full-time work. So how do you find sort of which journals to look at? So uh, actually, let's, let's start at the beginning. So you... Um, a sort of officially uh, as an integrity consultant, so science and integrity consultant. So you you look through images and sort of you publish very publicly um, sort of misconduct that you find. Um, is it the only thing that you do as a as a consultant, or are there other things? The work I do online, the work that's visible, is is not consulting because, mm -hmm. like, when I do consulting, I'm you know not I cannot talk about those cases. They are private. And I, I usually have to sign a form that I cannot disclose those results. So it's more so, like an investigation? Um, yeah, all the things I do online are just my, my personal unpaid work uh, on science misconduct. And that is leading off from tips that I get, uh, direct messages on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. I get messages on anywhere where people think they can reach me. They will send me requests for help. So you usually like uh, check out this paper or um, I, I'm involved in a particular case. Can you help me? So I get all kinds of requests. And I also work on uh, a lot of cases that I have from my earlier work in a couple of years ago. I, I did a big scan of 20,000 papers, biomedical papers, and I looked for images. And I'm still working off the leads that I found there. I found 800 papers with image duplications. And some of those cases, if you look at those authors, you'll find more and more cases. So I have tons of little leads that I still am following up on. And my consultancy work is, is all more private. I, I could talk about a little bit what that is. And mm -hmm. that is that is more sim it's similar to what I do online, but those would be different cases. 
So I'm usually uh, hired or yeah, talk, helping people who work, who are research integrity officers at universities in the US, in anywhere in North America or in Europe, uh, for so far I've worked on. And they ask me for help with particular cases. So maybe one of their researchers has been uh, suspected of misconduct. Maybe there have been a couple of cases posted online. There's a website called PubPeer that mm-hmm. uh, I post on and a lot of other people who do similar work as I do also post there. And so if work from a researcher at a particular university has been flagged on PubPeer, such a university might look at these cases and might not really see the duplications or might not believe it. Then they ask me for a second opinion, for example, or, or they just ask me go over all papers by this researcher, or maybe they have some original files. Can you compare those photos to the published photos and tell me if they're the same or not? So those would be typical cases that I that I've worked on. And do you try to sort of try to figure out what actually happened? So, for example, if you find a duplication, do you sort of go deeper into trying to figure out whether this was a mistake or this was on purpose or um, anything around that? I cannot really tell uh, most of the time if something was a mistake or was done on purpose, but there's a couple of things that I, a couple of situations where I'm fairly certain it was uh, one of those two, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of cases where I'm I'm just not quite sure. Uh, so when, when a university asked me to look into what, some of these figures, I cannot really tell if one of these two situations was the case uh, because I don't really have the original files most of the times. They might have it and they might share it with me, but not always. They usually will just ask me as a as an expert, like, can you look at these two two photos or these this this mm-hmm. one photo and tell me if you see duplications? And I'll tell them yes or no. Um, whether or not it was an accident, I I have some rules that I can sort of give a chance for an accident, but I cannot really tell in a particular case often if it was an accident or not. But there, there's a couple of cases where it's very likely to have been done with, as we say, the intention to mislead. <laughs> so done on purpose. Uh, for example, have, yeah. uh, so if you, for example, have a photo where you see the same, uh, uh, the same cell or the same protein bands twice within the same photo, that is very unlikely to have happened by accident. And of course, you can argue, well, all cells look a little bit similar to each other or all DNA or all protein bands look similar to each other. But you can actually tell them apart if you have seen many of them uh, and the resolution is high enough. You can you can sometimes tell them clearly apart. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they just look much more similar to each other than expected. And in those situations, it's, it's highly unlikely that it was an honest error. So do people try to sort of, when when you sort of publish uh, publicly, do people contact you sometimes and say, you know, you've sort of flagged my paper, I did a mistake, can you, I don't know, take it down or put out my explanations or, mm-hmm. or something similar? Uh, I haven't had too many of those responses. Uh, in the very beginning, when I just started this work and I would report these cases under my full name to the editors, some of the editors immediately forwarded my email um, to the authors. So they knew that it was me who had complained. And so I was uh, 
you know, a little bit uh, anxious about that. And, and some of the uh, authors actually wrote me back and said that this is ridiculous or you can clearly tell these two bands apart or so. But um, now that I have a little bit more uh, experience in it and I, I hopefully build up a name that what I bring up are good cases, I feel fewer and fewer people feel the need to respond to me privately. And um, But we've had some discussions on pop here and, and I've had some you know, some not very nice comments on Twitter, but luckily not too many private messages. I, I do try to hide my email address a little bit because I don't want, you know, everybody to, to just contact me because that uh, might not result in some nice messages. But I also want to be reachable for people who need my help or who could, you know, want to ask for advice. So it's a little bit of a balance that I'm trying to find there. So how do you keep yourself sort of safe or from those predators? Because obviously you're you get quite a few people angry with your with your publications. I well, first of all, I try to remain as objective as possible. So when I sometimes see other people discuss misconduct online, uh, a lot of people will resort to words such as fraud or you know scandal, and I sometimes use those things, but usually with respect to institutions or journals or editors, like, you know, vague anonymous groups. But I try to be polite when it comes to individuals, because I know that there's perhaps a very sad story behind each of these cases. And I don't want to really call out one particular person when, especially when I don't really know which of the authors has been responsible for, you know, making that blot. So I don't always know that. So by trying to remain as objective as possible under the circumstances, so just say these two bands look very similar to each other uh, or these two cells look very similar. And uh, that sort of leaves, I'm not trying to make any big accusations. And, and so that is the most important thing, hopefully that yeah keeps me out of trouble. Um, but yeah, I'm, I am worried. Um, so I, you know, would rather not tell where I live, for example, and um, would rather not share too much of my personal situation. And uh, yeah, that that is a little bit of a of a worry. But so far, fingers crossed, I've I've been out of trouble. That's great. So I would imagine that the, uh, keeping integrity in science should be a widespread thing. People. You mentioned uh, a chief integrity officer in university, which is, by the way, the first time I've heard that uh, there is such a, a position. I was not aware of that. So mm -hmm. that's probably the person to contact when you think something is um, is off when you're like doing science in, in academia. Mm -hmm. But my question is, you post your finding out there uh, but you have you have uh, credentials. You have loads of experience in that. Do you think it's it might be a career killing move for a postdoc or or a young PI like in the in the beginning of his tenure track to stand up and speak and say, "Listen, I'm part of this department. This and that. It it looks fishy. Just flag that. Check that." Yes, and and I think uh, those positions are are few. There's probably just a couple of people at each university doing that. But it's it's 
those positions have been there for several years. I'm not quite sure for how long, but most universities, at least in the United States, do have an easy to find research integrity office. And those are dedicated staff members, uh, but sometimes there, it, it also involves like the dean of research or positions like that who have it sort of research integrity as part of their job, but not their full-time job. But um, at other bigger universities, there might be a full-time research integrity team even. And those would be people not just dealing with, uh, you know, suspicious blots from Professor X, but just also with training of students. So if you're a graduate student or postdocs at some point in your training, you'll have to take some classes in science or research integrity. Um, usually they, they might be a little bit boring and, you know, it's a lot of forms. And so I, I do think there should be much more room for more practical examples and not just research integrity. There's also things, of course, as uh, like ethical ethics of research, animal ethics, all those things are related to doing responsible research. And, and so all those things are yeah, part of, of usually what that team does and uh, might be different people doing slightly different parts of the job. But yeah, it's definitely a career. But yeah, it's uh, there's not that many people, I would say, at a university that would do that. There's many more people who do research at a university. And um, again, uh, what have you seen thus far in your career? So can you give us an example of like a gray area, somewhere that a PhD student or postdoc says, uh, that's okay if I do that. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not really sure if it's wrong or mm -hmm. not, but it really bumps up this paper if I do that. And right. Yeah, no, it's a good question because it, it, it sort of touches upon the slippery slope of research misconduct. And it's, it's very easy. I usually give the example of a... Um, I made a calibration curve, uh, concentration series, you know, you dilute them and um, you measure, you know, how much DNA binds to your uh, whatever particles. And um, so you're supposed to have a nice linear curve when you make your dilution. And there was this one outlier, like I had this one, you know, one, one of the uh, dilutions just was out of my, out of the nicely expected line. And so, of course, we have expectations as scientists for how the outcome should be. And that's, that was just an outlier and didn't fit my curve. So what I did, I just redid my curve and, and then it looked fine. And I'm like, okay, I just, I guess I leave out this curve. I don't know what happened there. but um, And I, I do think, even though I'm sure that most scientists will have been in a certain situation like that, where you just redo the experiment because you don't trust the outcome. But it, we are... It gives you, you have to think about how we expect a particular outcome and how we're not always ready to, to accept the outcome when it's not expected. We are all biased. And so I, I felt that my outcome of the calibration curve was pretty expected and, and, I, uh, and I kept track of it. So I, did, I wrote in my notebook, like, I don't know what happened here. I'm going to redo it. And here's the, the new curve. So I didn't hide it, but I, do, I did feel like, oh, I am on a slippery slope here. I'm going to do better next time and just really as long as you keep track of things in your notebook that's fine but if you as as soon as you start to hide results and uh yeah then then you're on the way downhill pretty much yeah i wonder you, you sort of you, you find so many cases um do you sort of 
try to keep track of sort of how those cases um, end up um, and whether they're sort of specific reasons or sort of um, a theme of sort of why this happens uh, in academia so much? Uh, not so much why things happen because I often don't really know why people do that. I have some, you know, some some general scenarios that I can think of, but in individual cases, I don't know why things happened. But I yes, I have a big spreadsheet of five thousand <laughs> cases, and I I keep track of you know the regular things like you know the the authors and the the title of the paper and the citation and the DOI, you know, the standard stuff, the year of publication, um, but also from which institutes they were. And then when I've reported them to the editor, um, if I've reported them on pub here, which date, which identity, because I have, I mostly post under my full name, but there have been a couple of cases in the past where I was a little bit hesitant to post under my full name um, because some authors love to, sh- to sue. And so in those cases, when I know they have a history of suing, whoever <laughs> throws any criticism at them, I will post under a pseudonym. Um, but I'm posting more and more under my full name. So I keep track of all of that. So, mm-hmm. and then, you know, if a paper got corrected, retracted, when, if I was notified or not. So it's a big spreadsheet and, uh, it's loading slower every day <laughs> because <laughs> it's so big, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's sort of the, the thing I have. And I have it on Google sheets and I, I just hope Google doesn't, you know, lose their backup because that's, that's basically my, my. Yeah, the thing I've worked on in the past 10 years or so. Oh, wow. So how, how does it look like? Uh, wh- what percentage of, of cases are actually being addressed by the universities or the journals? Uh, so uh, for me, the outcome is whether or not a paper is retracted or corrected, not necessarily what individual authors, uh, how they're punished or, or you know, if they lo- lose their job. I don't keep track of that because that's, for me, the interest is, in what happens to the papers, not to the persons. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so the outcome is is a little bit disappointing and frustrating because um, I started this in 2014-15 and I did uh, this big search of 20,000 papers and I found 800 papers with duplicated images in that search. Wow. And so this is a nice set because I've reported them uh, all uh, in, in 2014 and 15. So now we're and some in 2016. So, but they're all reported at a particular time period. So now we're five years later and I can know, or or seven years in some cases, I sort of know what happened to these papers. Mm -hmm. And um, only, uh, let's say 10% are retracted Mm -hmm. and uh, less than 30% are corrected. So that together is 40% of papers five years after reporting them have been addressed. And 60%, so the majority of paper is still unaddressed, is still out there with all the problems that are found. And and in some cases, really minor problems, just a little duplication where I just think, I don't know, something went wrong here with the inserting the figure or making the figure or, or, you know, the whole same figure is inserted twice with all the different panels. And you can see from the legend that should be two different figures. And that's clearly an error where, I don't know, something went wrong with the publication. And, And I'm sure it could be easily fixed, but... Yeah, sixty percent of these papers are still out there without editors responding to these things. So I'm mainly blaming the editors here because I I just reported all of them to the editors because I saw them as individual cases, not really as big 
conglomerates of, of, of papers by the same authors. I have some of that as well, but those are reported a couple of years later, usually. So yeah, disappointing because it is disappointing. <laughs> because you, you would you would think that science is self-correcting. That's what we always yeah. hear. No, but we are we are all grinding <laughs> on the the wheels of the um, the publishers. Right. And but I I also sympathize for the publishers. Like I don't see them as as the enemies. I uh, because I have to work together with publishers and editors, and so I. And actually, those are great careers too. If you if you enjoy science writing or, or editing, it, they're fantastic careers there as well. But um, of course, it is tough that we as researchers have to pay for submitting our papers, and we are not getting paid to review them, and then we have to pay to download them. And there's there's all things that I think could be much better in scientific publishing. And 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 you know, a lot of publishers make tons of money, and 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 we peer reviewers don't get anything of that. And I'm, you know, finding the errors also for free. So those are things I'm frustrated about. But uh, I know that at least some publishers and, and journal editors are trying to set the record straight, but they have to deal with all these hurdles of, of authors not responding, authors coming up with the weirdest excuses, you know, pretty much the dog ate my homework type of thing. <laughs> Sad stories about basement floods and deleted uh servers and and you know being in the hospital and you know some of it might be true but at some point you start to doubt all these stories so anyway it takes a long time to address all these problems and um but publishers are trying and, and changing a little bit i i do feel all the work i've done in the past it's starting to pay off so some of the publishers have actually hired people like me who will deal with all these deal with the authors, deal with all these papers, screen manuscripts before they get accepted and published, which is even better, like that's more preventive. And so that's actually, it seems to be a whole new career for that, you know, people screening manuscripts for image duplications. Uh, for example, PLOS One or PLOS in general, the publisher hired several people to deal with all the cases that I've put on in their lap and they're still working on the backlog. And, and so... There's a couple of people who I guess I gave a job. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a new business venture. It's, it is. It's an yeah. integrity screening uh, service. Yeah. So uh, do is. you screen manually? Yes. Yeah. I uh, I screen by eye. I, I am starting. I have started in the past couple of months to use some software. And that's uh, it's great in very particular cases. Um, it's not very good in, in, in several other situations. So there's cases in which it, it has just sped up the amount of duplications that I can find. Mm -hmm. um, but it also has missed some that I clearly see are duplicates and it's just, it's not picking them up. So it's it's hit or miss sometimes, but it, it, it helps me uh, find. But there always needs to be a human factor. You cannot just rely on the software because it will, for example, it will flag uh, two things that are supposed to look similar. Like, you know, when you have these microscopy photos and you look at them with one filter and then with another filter and you merge the images and all these images sort of look similar to each other and software will flag that. Uh, but you need to have a human interpretation saying, well, yeah, but they're expected to look the same. So that's fine. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a new career. Yeah. It's a, a space for innovation is if anyone's mm -hmm. listening. <laughs> <laughs> Be the first in market and uh, the second to market, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so so strictly images right no so you don't deal with plagiarism with reading stuff no i i have dealt with plagiarism in the past also that's actually how i started to work in this field um uh, so i found several papers that had plagiarized text that con uh, review papers that just consisted of all these little pieces of text that they stole from one source and another source and sort of glued it together and formed one big new article so i've i have like I've reported 80 papers for plagiarism and got a couple of them retracted. But I, I by accident found out that I have this skill to find duplicates. But mm -hmm. uh, so duplications in images is sort of my specialty. But I've also flagged papers for just bad signs or like horrible animal experiments and um, just completely wrong interpretations or where just certain control groups weren't done right or conflict of interest. So I have, I have flagged many other papers for, for other problems, but uh, yeah, Im image duplications is my specialty. Yeah, I wanted to ask, so you, you uh, publish a lot of it on Twitter and some of it is very interactive where you sort of invite others to, to spot the, the mm -hmm. duplicates and sort of figure out by themselves. Is it a, are you trying to sort of educate others to, to spot the differences or is it to attract others uh, just to your account? Like it's fun. <laughs> I, I've, I've, we've, we've done it in the lab several times where someone would sort of bring it up and it's like, can you spot the difference, <laughs> the duplications? And we, um, we had a good time. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, I was just uh, wondering. Yeah. So it's, it's my plan to secretly educate everybody uh, to, to, <laughs> to see these things. And I mean, it's sort of, once you so people are super spotters or you're not like some people have no talents for it i found out like you you can just show them and they're like they still don't see it even if i labeled the the duplications uh while other people immediately see it and and so that's that's already a thing like you can you have the talent or you don't but that's that's okay and but but i do feel that when i make people aware that these things exist Mm -hmm. you will it will be easier to spot these things when a person does a peer review because it only takes seconds if you if you're just trained not just trained to see it but just be aware that some people might be fraudulent or errors might exist it just takes a couple of extra seconds maybe a minute to scan mm -hmm. the couple of figures in a manuscript right uh, well you know for a peer review that takes hours, I don't know, maybe I'm a slow peer reviewer, but my peer reviews usually take a couple of hours. And so that would only add a couple, you know, tiny fraction of extra time just to go over the figures and, and make sure that they're okay. I don't expect people who peer review a paper to be uh, very proficient in, in finding really tiny manipulations. Uh, that would not be a realistic thing, but like just when two figures are just the same, like you know, you just look at them and you're like, wait, why did nobody see this? I think those things should, you know, could be part of a, of, of a peer review. But I don't expect people to spend hours on, on every figure trying to see if it's duplicated or not. Yeah, but I so, find it, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I just, I, I find it surprising that a lot of the times the duplications are right there in the figure. So a lot of the time when we were doing this, we, we kept wondering how come people... If they're out trying to be fraudulent, why are they not more sophisticated doing it? Why? <laughs> it, it it's mind-boggling. Why would they post the same pictures when it's, you know, as you say, like if you're mm -hmm. a bit looking for it, you'll find it quite easily. 
And, you know, when you post pictures of, you know, microscopy, you have hundreds of pictures on your computer. You might as well choose something that's harder to figure <laughs> out. Um, I never quite understood why. Do, do you have Well, a- no, I mean, the, the answer is I'm really only catching the stupid, <laughs> the stupid <laughs> fraudsters. <laughs> like the, the smart fraudsters I cannot catch because, like you said, you just grab, you move the, the sample under the microscope a little bit farther and there's no overlap. I would not see that. Right. Um, you, uh, I don't want to give any bad no. idea. So I hope <laughs> the fraudsters are not listening, but you know, if I want to make it look like a particular treatment is not, uh, is resulting in, in, in less of an expression of a particular protein of interest, I would just pipe it one tenth of that <laughs> sample in that, in that particular lane. Right. I mean, you can fraud, you can, yeah, you can do bad things in, in many different ways. I'm really only catching the very dumb <laughs> fraudsters <laughs> it's the same as you know somebody stole my television and they left their driver's license like like oh well that's yeah. and you obvious. find sometimes like hundreds of papers right with 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 like very similar pictures and um so they're not just fraudulent they're lazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean yeah and in some cases people will say also on twitter like it it seems to be more work to have have done the photoshopping than the actual experiment. Although I do feel like if you're a good photoshopper, it would probably take you an hour to photoshop that image and maybe, you know, a, a couple of days to do the experiment. So I don't think that's always true. But uh, yeah, sometimes you make it makes you wonder why they left so many uh, things for me to to find. And <laughs> and not just for me, there's, there's several others who have uh, joined the hunt and, and, and do the same thing. But uh, yeah, we're really only catching the tip of the iceberg. Um, and uh, I'm only looking at photos. And, and photos are still something that is relatively easy to find duplications in. But if you think about tables or line graphs, those things are super hard for me to... I can just look at the, at the graph and it looks fine to me. But who knows? Maybe somebody just designed that on their computer and never did the experiment. And that is something that actually worries me that I'm... You know, there might be so much more misconduct in papers uh, that goes unnoticed because you just it doesn't leave any traces, and, and so those are much harder to find. So you mentioned others are in the hunt as well. So do you usually um, focus on your field of expertise, like microbiome, or you expand to any any scientific field? And if if the others in the field also like take categories like epigenetics oncology mm-hmm. stuff like that no so um my own field my own old field a microbiome uh, those papers do not have uh, a lot of photos most of them will not have any photos most will have ordination plots and bar graphs and line graphs and and, and just not nothing that is a photo oh, thank thank god just i just had the image of the, fo- the possible photos from a microbiome man uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can make a photo of, of poop, of bacteria, but <laughs> most, most microbiome researchers will look at their DNA, not, not really, or the molecules, other molecules they make, but they won't, I mean, there's some exception. There's, there's, um, you know, some, some images of, 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 mic, uh, you know, microbes in, in particular situations, but uh, most of those papers just don't have, and I've seen many of them. So most of them don't have any photos. So all of us focus all the others that also do the same work, we just focus on papers that have photos. And that is a particular category of papers. So those would be typically 
molecular biology papers with Western blots, um, DNA blots, um, things like microscopy photos. And so those are, it, it limits sort of the fields that we can work on because a lot of like physics and chemistry usually also don't have photos. So we don't really look at them, but, but we, uh, it's um, mainly immunology, oncology, anything molecular biology involving photos. I wonder, do you, so you, you scanned a lot of um, publications and some publications are from the academia and some are from the industry. And I wonder, do you, do you keep track of that as well? Sort of, do you have, because I'm just, I want to sort of explore why, why I'm asking is that we have this very challenging time with explaining science and explaining sort of how dedicated usually people are to their science. Um, and that's true both for academia and, and to industry. And I, I wonder if you see sort of similar patterns in, um, in industries published science or not. Um, so most of the papers I've found image problems in are from um, universities or academia. So I don't really see actually a lot of papers from industry. Just it seems that the majority of papers that gets published are from academic centers. Mm -hmm. and uh and but also more and more papers are uh, combinations thereof so they might be you know some industry partners and some academics academics working together on like vaccine trials for example so those are uh getting a little bit more common but i haven't noticed any particular problem there i feel that actually industry papers are uh, scrutinized a little bit more than academia, uh, having worked in <laughs> in a, in a startup myself, and especially the bigger companies are, you know, they they just know how much they can lose if they make a mistake. So I, I do feel there's more, uh, more, you know, it's more carefully uh, reviewed before it gets out for for publication. And not to say, I mean, fraud can happen anywhere, but I I do feel that uh, a company would just know a little bit better that how much there is at stake. But yeah, having worked at a small company, uh, I do feel, feel that smaller companies might maybe are at more risk for making mistakes and uh, or even doing uh, yeah misconduct. Uh, that might be a higher risk because they're still unexperienced and they just don't know how much they can lose if they make mistakes like that. Yeah. I think also in academia there, um, the pressure is so high to to publish and to get to the next stage. And, and, and as we often explore with offer that people are very pressured into thinking that this is the only path. And from PhD, you go to postdoc and for postdoc, mm -hmm. you go to, to a PI and people feel that pressure all along their careers that my, my suspicion is that this pressure is sort of a lot of time, a lot of the time is probably the reason for this mm -hmm. misconduct. And, as you say, in a in a company, it's probably more of a group effort. So, also the responsibility and the pressure is sort of um, divided between the group members. So maybe then you're either you don't have the opportunity, but also you don't have the pressure to to do something like that. Right, and and I think a lot of industry research is never published because uh, publishing would mean sharing particular details about the product that as a company you don't want to give away and uh that is the balance i felt when i was working at 
the startup where you I wanted to publish, but there's also certain details that of course need to be then shared. And how do you how do you you know give not enough information to still have stuff you can patent, but give enough information to publish it? And that's that's not always easy and, and not always possible. But yeah, I, I do feel that a lot of bigger companies will never publish. They don't really need to publish. They might have, they just care about a product. And in some cases, they, they of course, hope that people publish results with their products and they can show it on their website saying, oh, you know, University X and Y are using our DNA extraction kit or our, our antibiotic or, you know, the, they, but they don't necessarily publish themselves because that would mean giving away their trade secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so for acad- for academics, when they publish, you have your name on the paper. You have someone corresponding to maybe a PI, the, the author, someone that you could you can find a, a duplication and go back to and say, "Listen, your job did that." But from your experience in in industry, usually the people who do the science in early stages are not the one that are actually doing the science in the company when they file for the FDA, FDA or when they, when they scale up. But still, there is some documentation. You have to document much better in industry, in, inside, like notebooks and everything. How, like, how about like accountability for misconduct that's been done like years before? I'm not part of the company anymore. How does that work in industry? Uh, yeah, that's a, a tough question, and and even in academia, it's not always clear because, you know, is 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 the person photoshopping the blot? Obviously, is is directly responsible, but maybe they feel the only way they can get a publication or a letter of recommendation is, and they have a bully PI who just basically forces them to have a positive result. That PI is maybe also responsible, and so it's not usually just one person going rogue. But yeah, you're right. In a, in a in industry, there's there's many more people involved. But it also, I feel, there's less chance of one uh, person who wants to do misconduct to uh, to have that all the go all the way through. I feel there's so many more groups working on it and so many more eyes on it that it, there's less of a chance that one rogue person could introduce a big mistake it might happen uh but it seems to be that there's so many people looking at these results that that seems to be less likely to happen i'm, I'm not quite sure of course but uh yeah that's my best of my opinion on new aspects of publication so last the last year with pandemic and everything and it has been almost an hour and the first time we mentioned this uh a lot of open access. People are just like dumping their papers in in a, a, a bio archive, med archives, no peer reviews, just for everyone to look at. How how can um, how can you deal with this like influx of of information that is not scrutinized, it is not uh, critically reviewed in the process? Well, I've seen very little misconduct, almost no misconduct in in bioarchive or med archive papers. Uh, people who want to do misconduct are going straight for the publication because they need a publication for their career or their, um, and they actually don't want to have a lot of eyes on these things before they get published. So 
any paper that is on BioArchive or MetaArchive or any other preprint gets so many, basically so thousands of peer reviewers because so many people look at them and, and every little mistake hopefully will be noticed by somebody. Well, a fraudulent person, um, at least in the scenario that I have in my head, is uh, a fraudulent person just wants to have it published and sort of hopes that the two peer reviewers or three peer reviewers and the editor do not notice the misconduct, do not look at it too critically, are in a hasty situation. And and once the paper is published, they don't really care. It's published and, and they can, you know, check that box on their resume or, or whatever they need it. And so I, I, I've seen very little misconduct, at least in image man manipulation type of uh, uh, duplications in preprint papers. Wow, it's incredible. It's a, it's completely opposite of what you would expect, right? Over yeah, uh, it's very <laughs> encouraging as well. It's yeah, yeah, but there's there is a big influx. For example, there's a very specific field um, of the non-coding RNAs uh, in 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 oncology um, that uh, we've seen a huge influx of papers that are peer reviewed and and being published, and and they are the papers that contain. Uh, sometimes massive amount of image duplication and, and manipulation. And, and so that's a very specific field that seems to be infiltrated by paper mails, for example. So uh, companies that produce papers on demand um, and just use reuse the same photos to represent different experiments or just make, you know, make up experiments that never happened. Oh. It, it actually comes, uh, I saw an ad on, on LinkedIn uh, to a company that would, um, sort of read through books and make a recommendation uh, using AI of sort of concise information based on different books. And you can just ask a question and they will sort of pop on and answer. And I think that's also uh, sort of something to look out for where you would have entire papers just sort of written by a AI. And there, there was an experiment like that like a paper written by an AI. Uh, the, I think the portal is still on. Uh, we'll look it up and maybe put it on the... SciGen, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a sort of a artificial uh, paper generator. It was really fun because you could you could uh, put your own name in and like the name of a famous person or your, your cats or whatever and like write a paper <laughs> with those persons and it would just like in seconds generate a paper that looked really cool and 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 but it was complete nonsense but uh and, and people have used that sort of as a as a fun way to see if they could infiltrate and get that paper published in predatory journals to see if any anybody just was reading it or just accepting whatever was sent their way and so but yeah those are scary developments they're still recognizable as as you know not real but mm -hmm. the it, it it is scary if you, if you look for example how good faces can be imitated now by ai there was a new york times article a couple of months ago where they showed all kinds of faces and they're they're not real but they look real you might find like tiny mistakes in them and like in their ears or like i don't know sometimes they have two different earrings or things like that but they look so realistic um so you can just imagine how easy it would be to fake a western blot or or a microscopy photo like that that seems to be very easy compared to how how, how hard it is to make a face that looks realistic yeah. we actually went with the kids to um to a fair when back in the day where, <laughs> when you could go to a fair and i know expose your kids so, to science. <laughs> so long ago yes <laughs> um and they had those pictures and we couldn't identify any of those sort of 
And then they tell you that you have to look at the hair or like something, sort of very specific details. And then you could yeah. recognize but, you know, but not years, to the naked eye. Yeah. But two years from now, that's those little errors have been, uh, you know, overcome. And, and then those photos would not be uh, distinguishable anymore. Like you really need to be told to, to look at the faces, to to see the errors, but yeah, that's only a matter of time. I'm sure that's going to be so realistic, and 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 those are scary developments. And um, so I I don't know how we would be able to solve it. We could also use, of course, computers and AI or whatever method you can think of to find duplications, because that's a development I'm looking forward to and is already starting to take place, where every manuscript, every photo can be scanned against the database of all kinds of photos that have ever been published. And so those are things that we image spotters could never do. <laughs> and, and, and so that's something that you need a computer for to, to find these um, duplications. And that would hopefully be able to catch some of these duplicates before a paper gets yeah. published, which is much better for everybody involved. Yeah, I'm sure it's the next step already for plagiarism. Like, the, yes, like every yeah. university would sort of scan papers. Right. So... So that's the next step. You just need a, right, a, a right. small jump in the technology, I guess. Yeah, and it, uh, people are working on this. So I, I'm beta testing one of the uh, software that can scan within an image or between, you can feed it up to 10 images. But the next step is obviously scanning you know, 10 photos against 10 million photos. And you cannot do that with Google Scholar and, and a, a Google uh, image, a reverse image search. You cannot really do that. I've tried that, but it doesn't recognize little Western blots, individual parts. Um, it, it will look at the whole figure, you know, with all the, mm -hmm. the, the graphs and the photos and the whatever is in a figure are usually really complex nowadays in, in scientific papers. So they have multiple uh, panels. And, and so they will, the, the, the program will see that as the whole image, but it cannot recognize tiny little parts of these images. But that's, it's a solvable problem, but it's, uh, it's not... We cannot yet do that, but but I, I'm sure there's many people working on that. And that will be a tool that publishers then eventually can use. Like you said, like plagiarism software has already is already being used by a lot of um, universities, but also publishers to screen manuscripts. So they'll they look forward to use that for image duplications as well. If a young researcher uh, wanna join the effort, how they just contact you? And there is like a there is a test or <laughs> <laughs> a little driver's license test or so. Uh, well, actually, sure, of course. I, <laughs> well, I I just hope that that by following the examples I give on Twitter, um, those are 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 basically purely for entertainment value. So I usually will not say which paper it is, but people can see if they if they can spot the those duplications or not, and then I just hope they'll do it on their own they you know just grab a paper or if you if you search for a particular type of image on google uh image search it is useful for that purpose you can just say i don't know western blot and you'll start to find uh, a bunch and then sometimes you can already see from the little thumbnails that there are <laughs> duplications going on um or just grab a bunch of papers from your own field or any papers there i mean there's so many papers we we can use many more people doing it and I, I do want to give a shout out. There's several other people doing what I'm doing. I'm like doing it under my full name. So, <laughs> but I do want to give credit to all those other people who work behind the scenes and uh, work under pseudonyms because they have 
you know, reasons to remain anonymous, but they're, you know, incredible people who, who uh, just dedicate all their free time to, to do this search without getting ever any credit. <laughs> like I get some credit, but they never get the credit because there's, they're anonymous, but uh, yeah, that's uh, they, we, we often work as, as teams. We've worked on paper mills together and uh, we, we uh, contact each other regularly to ask for help. And, you know, do you think this is a duplication or not, or uh, discuss particular groups of authors who might be doing this uh, as a, you know, as their <laughs> career. And uh, yeah, so we, we, we are sort of a, uh, a very sort of unorganized team, but uh, behind the scenes, we contact each other a lot. Well, it's great. And you, you all do a very, very important job uh, to the science. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, field in general. So thank you. And just, I think both sort of spotting the specific problems, but also just making everyone aware that, um, you know, just assuming, as you said in the beginning, that scientists are all sort of very um, sort of sincere and and just, it, it doesn't always work out and you have to be careful. Um, right evaluate when you're evaluating others work and sort of looking at your own work that you have this is something to be kept in mind always. right right and yeah and always assume it could be an honest mistake uh and that is sometimes the case but uh yeah be be on the lookout for these things because you might come across an article for that you read for your own research and you might see one of these images or just have general questions i i feel don't don't assume that a published paper is sort of the truth. Like there could always be something that you could be critical of and, and, you know, don't be afraid of rate to raise that, but remain polite. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> the, that's the advice I can give. Uh, you yeah. asked me on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, still, yeah. still have to work on that. <laughs> it's it's something I had to work on a lot. Like I, when I read some of my older comments, I'm like, no, uh, how, how? Okay, but yeah, I've 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 tried to have a particular tone, and I don't always follow my own rules because there are some cases where you're just like, no, this is so bad. <laughs> this <laughs> this paper deserves to be named and and shamed. But um, yeah, try to make it about the images and the papers, not about the authors, because you know there's there's human behi- humans behind uh, each of these names, and there's tragical score- stories maybe behind it. And uh, not everybody on the paper might actually be aware that there was misconduct or that there were errors. And you always have to sort of assume that uh, most people on the paper, at least, are of good intentions, and there might be just one rotten apple in the in the basket but you you might not know who it is and so uh, best to remain polite <laughs> and uh, objective wow thank you so much elizabeth this is really really um important and uh interesting um topic um and yeah, as I said, thank you for your work that you do. That's that's amazing that someone actually dedicates so many hours. I can't even <laughs> imagine how many hours <laughs> it would take to scan all of those papers. Yeah, many hours. And and most of my work is unpaid. And so uh, when it comes to career advice, that's maybe not a good thing. <laughs> but uh, so it's uh, but yeah, I I do consulting, and um, I actually have sometimes more offers than I want to take on. So I regularly turn down things when it's a little bit outside of my knowledge and uh, um, but I, I do feel there's 
you could make a career out of this but um yeah it's a, it's a new new type of job and uh but luckily more and more universities and publishers are realizing that they need to have staff dedicated to to do this work and so i expect that there will be more jobs uh, like this in the future so, great great well thank you for having me on this was so much fun and uh i hope uh it was entertaining as well as educative <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right. absolutely on both counts thank yes. you so much thank you very welcome thank you so much